Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Like, after <laughs> every election, the Conservatives pretend that the silent majority they speak for is silent and majority when actually it's clearly a vocal minority. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to the show. Uh, we've just had our first Guardian Essential poll since the federal election. So as is our normal routine, I got together with the Director of Essential, uh, Peter Lewis, and the Chief Economist of the Australia Institute, Richard Dennis. This uh, was on a Tuesday night and we had a good old yak about, <laughs> you know, a post, I guess a post-mortem of the election, of polling and of the challenges facing the new Labor government. So this conversation was recorded on Tuesday evening and Peter is about to kick us off. Hey Murph, what's Thank the you. mood like down there? Tell us what's going on. So welcome. Um, I know that you, you you approached election day with trepidation, but here we are on the other side. Yes. What's going go. on? How's, how's the vibe? Well, it's, it's, well, look, as someone who's covered every transition or change of government since 1996, I can say without a shadow of a doubt that this one is moving at a faster clip uh, than anyone I've previously documented, even though, funnily enough, we're still dragging through the final count of the election more than a week after uh, people cast their votes or a lot of people cast their votes. You know, it's it's really extraordinary what's happened in the last week. Obviously, Anthony Albanese has become the Prime Minister, was sworn in with an interim executive, went to Tokyo five minutes later, came back, uh, you know, it, people rolled into Canberra over the last sort of 48 hours. Obviously, there's a new opposition leadership in Peter Dutton and Susan Lee. Uh, I was a bit late this evening and apologies to you all because uh, Anthony Albanese, after caucus met today, is now currently un- unveiling his new cabinet and ministry. That's just basically happened in the last... 15 minutes or so, um, and uh, those folks will be sworn in at 9.30 tomorrow. Um, And then uh, by the end of this week, Anthony Albanese will be on the plane again to Jakarta, uh, and he's told us today that uh, Parliament will sit again in the last week of July. So it's moving all over the place. In terms of the ministry, I think it's largely as we expected it was mooted for some time that uh, Richard Miles, who's the Deputy Labor leader, would end up with defence, and that's that's uh, the case. Uh, most people have kind of stayed more or less where 
they've been in terms of shadow portfolios, but there are some surprises. Tanya Plibersek is the new environment minister. I confess I didn't see that one coming. Uh, also, Claire O'Neill, who is a Victorian right-winger, has been given the home affairs portfolio, which is obviously a big challenge and a big responsibility and a big step up uh, for her, but she's an incredibly bright in, in terms of the sense of the government, um, yes. I know that Albo has taken, tried to take the heat out, um, even of the partisan attacks that we're not going to call um, Peter Dutton any names um, under his watch. Um, does it feel different there or does it just, you know, is it oh, just yeah. a lick of pain? No, 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 it does. It does. It's extraordinary um, uh, how... Yeah, it's I don't know. Was it Keating who said change, change the government, change the country? Um, yeah. And certainly, we've got um, the beginning of a new uh, tempo and tone in Canberra. It's it's very different, obviously, to the previous government, early days, of course, but uh, but it is very different. I think, even though Anthony Albanese didn't have the greatest election campaign, he wasn't always confident, and he didn't always kind of master the daily hustings vaudeville, uh, I think he's looking incredibly confident uh, since uh, since they've all been back and in this theatre of parliament and government. This is very, very familiar territory to Anthony Albanese. This is not, you know, something that he's never experienced before. He's looking very confident. He's asserting his confidence. Uh, he's he, he is, as you say, Pete, sort of... Um, you know, trying to presage a new tone uh, in the way politics is conducted. He's 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 sort of gesturing at the new parliament, which has a record number of crossbenchers in the lower house. In terms of you know, we've got to we've got to think about doing politics differently. Uh, you know, this kind of rhetoric. I think it'll be very interesting to see whether or not. Sorry, I just haven't turned my emails off. If you're all That's getting all right, you're probably getting a few pings right now. Yes, yeah, quite a lot of. Where's the copy <laughs> from News Desk? Yeah, pretty yes, much, pretty much. Uh, but anyway, let's just uh, move that away for a moment so I can focus here. So yeah, look, he's gesturing in the direction of this new. Um, parliament and the new dynamics of the parliament. I think it'll be very interesting whether or not Labor appoints a speaker from the crossbench. Uh, the, the development today uh, if uh, was that Labor will now govern with 77 seats. Uh, Labor uh, declared Gilmore in its column and so that pushes them to 77. They could then get a speaker from within their own ranks and still command a majority on the on the floor of the House of Reps. Uh, it's been an open question, uh, certainly around the government, about whether or not they'll appoint a speaker from the crossbench, which would be very interesting if that's what they did. So, you know, look, it's a long way to go. Obviously, Parliament's not even back yet. But, yes, I think there is a very different tone. And if you watched every minute of the hustings and you thought, oh, uh, you know, Anthony Albanese doesn't look that confident, um, I can say that he looks entirely confident now. Yeah. Like he's got through his initiation right and now he is the man. Well, it's sort of like it's his theatre, Mm. I think, whereas that sort of uh, the campaign was not his theatre. That's the first time he's done a, a campaign, obviously. <laughs> well, obviously not his first political campaign was when he was 12, but um, but the first, obviously, as the Labor leader and putative prime minister, 
And I think he will have learned a lot about the dynamics of campaigning that he didn't know prior to sort of going through the 2022 exercise. But look, Parliament and government, uh, the institutions of Canberra, how this runs, how, uh, you know, how the Labor Party runs as an institution and governs, uh, he's entirely fluent in that. And I think uh, he's sort of looked delight, delighted really to be back in a theatre where he feels he has the lie of the land and a certain degree of mastery. Mm. Now, I'm going to um, exercise stand-in MC privileges because this is poll position. We're here to look at the polling. Um, Richard, let's, I know that this time three years ago, there was, I guess, in my industry of polling, a degree of self-flagellation going on because we're on the extremes of margin of error. So I thought it was useful to maybe, before we get too deeply into this, open the kimono and tell you how we went this time with the essential report at least. So I'm going to do that very inelegant sharing of the screen and just show you what we came up with. Here we go. Here's our poll position put together by the fantastic Rob Lever. Now, we were a little bit thin on the primary vote. If you look at this, we're down on both major parties, where I do take some comfort, the gap's about the same. So um, we're a little bit fat on um, the major parties, a little bit skinny on the Greens, sorry, Greens, a little bit skinny on the independents. We don't quite have an explanation of all that, but what we will do over the next month is really interrogate those findings and make sure that we have our weightings right. There are some theories floating around that, you know, for instance, um, there are strategic Labor voters that pushed the Labor primary vote down because they lived in Teal seats and they wanted to see the Teals elected and all those Teal supporters, good on you. I saw it coming. Most people didn't. Um, but it does say to me that this poll is probably still a little bit over-representative of the major parties and we're going to look at what's going on there um, and whether it's the nature of the sample, whether it's the nature of the weighting. But the one I do want to show everyone is this because I reckon this ain't bad. So in terms of the 2PP, where Essential said, you know, 51-49 and it came out. 51-49. Richard? I think the polls were quite accurate this time. The the, the polls accurately predicted uh, the, the swing to the teals. Most people kind of wanted to tell themselves the polls were wrong when it came to those independents. Most people wanted to tell themselves that, oh, maybe one or two of them would win, but they couldn't all win. The polls said they could all win which didn't make it inevitable, but, you know, what the polls said happened. And uh, majority majority Labor government was predicted by the polls and, and that's what's come in. So, yeah, I, I don't think that we can ever, like a poll is not an election. Um, and if they were, we could save ourselves a lot of time and a lot of money for years. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, look, the polls were the polls were quite wrong three years ago. Um, uh, but in some sense, I think that, there was so much seat polling this time. And again, everyone's a bit nervous about seat polling, but three years ago, perhaps there wasn't enough. There was just that national poll. And let's never forget that at the last election, the 2019 election, there were big swings to Labor in those safe Liberal seats. There are really a lot of votes moved, but no seats moved. And that actually set up what just happened with, with the Teals, with the Independents winning all those seats. It was in those same seats where a lot of Liberal voters shifted last time 
which did affect the polls but didn't affect the uh, didn't affect the seats that would change hands. Yeah, look, I think we did a good job of taking the polls out of the competition, and by that I mean polling should always be part of the the noise behind the election, not the scoreboard. And I think that I, I think partly once bitten twice shy, like everyone was a bit suspicious of the polls, but we were very conscious, for instance, to keep the don't knows in there and to say, we're not telling you what's going to happen. We're just trying to give you a bit of an indication of, of what's happening now. I think the other thing is that it's, and maybe this is a broader discussion where Murph gets here, but it feels to me that this may be, well, it, it 2019 might have been the last real two-party election where two-party preferred is even relevant because so many seats, and if you watch individual seats moving in three-corner contests, the two-party preferred is shifting green-blue, red-blue, red-green, particularly in that seat of McNamara. So if we are moving towards more of a multi-party system where there are more voices and more players then again, we're going to have to adapt the way that we take the temperature of um, the political system. Oh, absolutely. And I think, well, A, that will be good. That'll be better for democracy. But B, uh, yeah, in terms of the two-party preferred uh, and in terms of just looking at elections as a horse race between two major parties, um, look, you know, as someone that worked for the Democrats 20 years ago and worked for the Greens 15 years ago, it's always been hard for independents and minor parties to, to rate a mention in a lot of national analysis. I do hope those days are behind us. Um, but also, I mean, think about the dynamics in the lead-up to the next election. You know, the, the Liberals will spend a year ripping into themselves as loudly as they'll try and rip into Labor, but... Let's just kind of put them aside for a while because we can. Um, but in two years' time, when we start to think about what's going to happen to the election, real issues like, so will the Liberal Party pursue trying to win back those once heartland seats or not, won't just have kind of horse race connotations. Strategic decisions like whether to abandon that former heartland mm. or whether to try and win it back is going to have a huge impact uh, on the nature and the shape of the policy debates that we have because the the, the issues the Liberals will have to focus on to win back the, the, the broken heartland uh, are going to be quite different from, you know, if, you, if, you, if the Liberals are still taking advice from Tony Abbott uh, and they're going to chase out of suburban seats off Labor. So if, if we're going to have to have a more nuanced picture of the whole electoral map and in turn, issues polling and seat-by-seat seat polling, I think, is going to play an even more important role. You know, the other one that I don't know if people here picked up was that um, the guys at YouGov working with NewsPoll ran a very different model, the MRP, which was effectively a big data exercise. So they, they did a survey of 11,000 Australians and then broke that into census, um, quite granular census segments, then matched them against electorates and then did a big, brave prediction that the election would end up with 80 seats Labor. They were a little bit fat on that as well, but it was interesting, particularly um, in the Labor pickups, they were pretty right. They missed a number of the teal pickups. But I thought it's great when you get new methodologies coming into the system. And that was really just using data rather than polling 
to be mm. honest with you. I, yeah. I still, I'm still not sure. A lot of those single seats, they were kind of bright, but there are quite a few that were a bit skittish as well. Um, we did ask a few questions this week. I'll just run through them quickly and get both you, you two to, to reflect on it, if, if you will, and then we will go to questions, and there's a heap of questions in the chat. Um, what is interesting on this, and if you are listening at home on The Guardian pod, you need to go to essentialreport.com.au. Um there is broad support for the Labor agenda. If you look at all these issues, there is either strong or somewhat support and very low opposition, but also encouraging manufacturing, improving the status of women in the workplace, support and increase the minimum wage, federal ICAC, renewables, universal access to early learning and a voice. Um, there's a bit of texture in terms of some of those, but what stood out to me in those was the primacy of the economic pieces and the pieces that are more are not so much what you call um, performative. None of it's performative, but more the the stuff that is hard yards economics, like raising wages and building stuff. Here is the stuff that people really want to see. And if I look at where the election map has ended up, Labor has held the Hunter. They've held the Central Coast. They've held provincial regions like the Illawarra, Gilmore, down into Geelong. This seems to me to be really important for the long-term Labor government. There is there is one constituents which is locking in the progressive vote and not fracturing that, but this is where the next election will be fought around building economic opportunity on the fringe of the city and the regions as the economy faces global pressures. Is that right, wrong, rubbish? Catherine, Richard, go me. Uh, no, I think I think you're right. Um, I think that while Labor will have uh, a small but absolute majority in the Parliament, the combination of that with the number of Greens uh, who've you know won seats from Labor and the Coalition now and the Independents, while Labor has a small majority, there's a super majority of parliamentarians that support, as you show in the slide what the public wants. And it's weird because, well, it's weird, there is an explanation, of course, but there's been a structural disconnect in Australia for quite some time between what an overwhelming majority of Australians wanted and what a majority of Parliament would go along with. And same-sex marriage kind of broke that and it was brutal and traumatic for many of those involved, but it really sort of showed that just because you could use parliamentary numbers to stop change, it didn't stop the demand for change outside of parliament. And now we're seeing that washed through with, the, the again, the, the coalition, the Liberals losing their literally heartland seats. And I've got a piece in the monthly out, I think it's out today, saying, you know, if you lose your heartland, do you still have a heart? Like, what does it mean when a party loses its heartland? But it's gone. And it's been replaced with independents who aren't going to agree with Labor and everything and aren't going to agree with the Greens and everything. But if we kind of flip it on its head and say, right, there's a super majority of people in Parliament that want climate action, there's a super majority of people that want a federal ICAC, there's a super majority that want to see uh, all sorts of things, including an Indigenous voice to Parliament, if Albanese, who used to be leader of government business in the House, he, he knows about Parliament, uh, if he's actually willing to, he's not going to need to necessarily negotiate with any of those people in the lower house. He will need the Greens in the upper house. 
But if he combines the issues that Labor care about with the issues that there's a supermajority in Parliament about, that the issues that he can get through the Senate, then I think the Liberals and the Nationals are going to look pretty irrelevant and pretty last mm. century, quite frankly, uh, if everybody plays to their strengths. Now, mm. let's not underestimate the potential for log jams amongst those that agree with each other, but I reckon there's plenty of opportunities here to pass a lot of ledge that will get the public on side and really show how to, out of touch and how, frankly, irrelevant uh, the Tony Abbott and Scott Morrison view of the Liberal Party's been. Yeah, Catherine, it feels like we've not just witnessed a change of government but maybe a change of political fault lines. On these numbers, the the Morrison's government position on most of these things is not where the debate is at. It's kind of like they're over there in Tennant Creek with, you know, the Sky After Dark crew. Like, yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. Not, it's not a non-agenda either. There's a bit there. Yeah, oh, well, that's that's true. Um, uh, and, and you know, as Richard says and, and you're getting at, there is, uh, you know, this this new parliament, the 47th, it, it will be a progressive parliament. And what occurred in the election campaign was uh, a group, I suppose, that have sort of, uh, you know, have been long mooted as, you know, potentially decoupling from the Liberal Party on social issues, climate change, whatever else. Like we've been talking about this, Pete, you and I, for a long, long time, this sort of group of progressive Liberal voter who Labor has been through God knows how many election cycles imagining, you know, is going to sort of uh, decouple and, and vote Labor or... Or uh, Green, or, yeah. Or Green, right. I mean, that that hasn't happened, but but it did in 22. Um Part of it was the disruption of having, for, for Liberals, having someone to vote for, for Liberals who can't vote Labor, tribal Liberals who can't vote Labor, then obviously having an independent was an important sort of step along that road of decoupling, I guess, right? So they could vote for independence. I think a lot of Labor people also voted strategically for independence if they were in those electorates, and that sort of got them across the line. I agree that there is, you know, that there is this sort of... um, Realignment. Well, I mean, this election is certainly the biggest electoral realignment since the Democrats, you know, on the on the centre right. I mean, biggest realignment since the Democrats were formed in the late seventies. Um, they didn't change government. They were a noise. I reckon it's the biggest realignment since the split. Well, it's sort of maybe, maybe. I think we've got to we've got to see how this how mm. this plays out. Right? There's um. The big thing that's happened is that this demographic, this cohort, uh, who have long been rumoured to be <laughs> consciously uncoupling from the Liberal Party, actually did in this election campaign. It, it, obviously, then that that's a that's a realignment yet to be banked. Obviously, people who did not vote Liberal in this election campaign have got to basically be comfortable, I suppose, with, you know, with their alternate choice, right, be that the Greens in some seats in Brisbane or be that the new group of Teal Independents. But also uh, we, we shouldn't forget that, uh, you know, that a number of Liberal seats in the city fell as well, Reid, Higgins, mm. and, and in those seats, you know, uh, Liberals voted Labor. So, you know, there was obviously... 
you know, it, it's a big, big shift, this result. It's a lot to get your head around, particularly if you were like me uh, and not really thinking that this would happen until I saw it. There's quite a lot to unpick here. Yeah. And, yeah, look, it's certainly, you know, as re- electoral realignments go, it's big. Mm-hmm. But I think we've still got to see how it's sort of how it's proved how it's proved up over the yeah. next three years to see whether or not uh, Australians are going to you know, sort of, I suppose, de- decouple from their preferred major party of choice in this election cycle, the Liberal Party, whether that's a sort of transient protest vote or whether it is a structural shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've got to just wait and see on that front. Yeah, you know, you know I, I, I banged on about this for a number of months saying that government only changes in a wave and Labor wins big or not at all. And I think what's interesting is that Labor hasn't picked up the 20 seats that a new incoming government normally does, but the Libs have basically lost 20. So yeah. there was a massive outgo. The tide totally went out on the Libs, but rather than just Labor surfing it in, there are a whole lot of other people that have surfed that into shore but, but, and yeah but I do think though Pete that's that's absolutely right uh and now there's this sort of like you know I think in, in international affairs there's this concept called the buffer state right and in terms of now the now the independence the larger crossbench is a buffer state right um so and, but I do think, though, that uh, that can, uh, sort of looking at that, I suppose, you know, Labor didn't absolutely kick this into touch. Labor didn't absolutely kind of surf along on a big progressive victory, which is what we're used to in campaigns when election, when, when Labor wins from opposition. I do think, though, what uh, it's sort of like we need to understand how difficult this campaign was, I think, for the Labor Party to hold its... Um, it's traditional mm. blue-collar territories, uh, as, as it did. You know, the Hunter seats around there, regional seats, they held those territories as well as kind of picking up ground in, a, in sort of more progressive urban contests as well. That is an incredibly hard thing to do in an age of atomization mm. and in an age of tribalism to put together, literally piece together a coalition of interests where and sometimes the you know the the interests of individuals are viewed as being diametrically opposed right i do think that's a sort of undervalued element of this election win for labor is that somehow <laughs> somehow they managed to keep this sort of coalition between traditional supporters and newer progressives. And in a way, these numbers show why, because the issues they ran on had that broad support. They'd just been distorted by the binary nature of the two-party state, and that's kind of broken up, yeah? Sorry, Pete, just quickly on that, I think you're spot on, but let's not underestimate that at the next election, Rather than like usually at an election, everyone's going after the government. But at the next election, there'll be independents looking at how close the Liberals are in Deakin, looking at how close to losing mm-hmm. Paul Fletcher was in Bradfield. Um, and it's it's not obvious that even in three years' time, the Liberals will be the ones defining the seats mm-hmm. where they will put their resources. So, yeah, this... Uh, you know, having looked for 20 years at polling and why people don't vote for independents and why they don't vote for minor parties, there's two reasons that come out in every focus group and every poll, and that is uh, don't want to waste my vote 
or, uh, you know, not quite sure what they stand for. Now we have independents and the Greens winning seats left, right and centre. They're going to be front and centre for another three years and people now know that it's not a wasted Mm. vote. So I think there's more libs that will be worried, particularly Michael Sooker and and former communications Mm. minister who suffered a 15% swing, Paul Fletcher. Well, I feel like I'm about to lose my job as host. Can I just quickly go through these slides, then we'll go to questions. And I, I, I'm look, the this slide shows there has been there is majority support now for um, Uluru statement, um, including an Indigenous voice in Parliament, but it's tight, 53. But that's the first time it's been above 53. So I might just quickly go through these and then get you guys to give an overview. So. Voice is one thing that we need to sort of think through how that's going to play out and what that does to this alliance. On the other side, there is this, we we asked, um, at your request, I might add, Catherine, whether people thought Labor's target on um, 2030 was enough or not enough, and you can see there it's pretty tight there, 41.35, 24% unsure. That's a potential left flank battle line. And the other ones that are just kind of nice for people to know is that we actually do like the idea that there are more views being represented in Parliament, two to one, and we think democracy is working better. So that's also good, 47% satisfied with democracy up from 35. Um, and that wasn't right after the 2019 election where none of us were satisfied in democracy. That was in 2017 when we thought that... Um, you know, the tide was going out on the government. So I'm going to stop the slides there. But I guess there, there you've got voice, climate and democracy. I don't know if you want to sort of weave a hot take into that, Catherine, for me. Well, maybe a tepid take. No, 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 joking, sorry. Um, no, look, I do think they're really interesting issues to kind of group together. Um, I think, and we can sort of uh, look at it just quickly through the prism of the new liberal leadership. Obviously, after an election result like the ones the Liberal Party had last Saturday night, you would think that the Liberal Party would be would be accepting that there is now a supermajority in favour of climate action, but uh, Peter Dutton is showing no signs of putting down the cudgels, at least on medium-term action. Interestingly, though, in terms of the voice, which in, where bipartisan support will actually be quite important uh, to running a successful referendum. Peter Dutton, the guy who walked out on the uh, apology to the stolen generations in 2008, did say yesterday, well, he didn't say yes, but he didn't say no either. He said, I just want to think this through. I understand I did the wrong thing in 2008. You know, we've got to sort of manage this through our our processes and work out where we want to go with this, which is a pretty big deal coming from him, actually, where he's lined up on some of these debates. I, I think it's extremely difficult for Peter Dutton to basically get agreement in the coalition for a constitutionally enshrined voice to parliament. I think that will be extremely difficult because... Mm. In his faction, the right faction of the Liberal Party, there's a lot of sort of, um, it's a ridiculous phrase in the Australian context to say constitutional originalists. This makes no sense at all in our democracy, but it's a similar disposition, right? Some people just don't want the framework added to, and there are a number of them in the Liberal Party, and that's what made it extremely difficult for Ken Wyatt 
to try and progress this agenda. And, of course, Scott Morrison famously came out, said to Ken Wyatt, yes, let's do it, then discovered that basically he'd get rolled in the party room if it was yes, let's do it. Look, it'll be, it'll, uh, it'll be difficult for Dutton, but if he decides he wants to do it, well, he's got the cachet on the right, maybe he can carry his own people. So that's a bit of a watch this space, I think. Richard, um, on the climate issue, there is probably two competing arguments going on um, depending what side of the green-red divide you sit. Um, I think Labor's position is let's just lock in the mandate we have and the Greens are pretty um, set in saying we need to be more ambitious. How do you see that playing out? Oh, look, I think that, again, you know, there's, there's a super majority that says let's do more. Uh, how how will parliamentary dynamics either reflect what's happened outside parliament, which is get on and do stuff, or get in the way of it? Um, look, Although those I, findings didn't say do more. That, that was kind of split, wasn't it? It was pretty... Oh, yeah. But obviously the Greens are going to say we were elected on a mandate to do more. Uh, the Teal candidates are going to say they were elected on a mandate to do more. Everyone's going to rightly say that 43 is an arbitrary number. You know, even the Business Council wants 50. But you can see why a newly elected Labor government's going to start with this is what we promised to do, this is what we're going to do. Um, uh, you know, I think we'll see a debate about mm. quality, not quantity. Um, 43%, all right, what's the role of dodgy offsets? What's the role of fossil fuel subsidies? What about building new coal mines? What about new gas? Like there's, four, you so know, there's lots of debates within the 43 is what you're saying. I, I would say above the 43. I mean, I, 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 I'm not Robinson Crusoe on this, but, you know, as someone that as an economist interested in climate policy for 20 years, I couldn't tell you the number of times we've changed the base year and the percentage number that we're willing to die in a ditch over. All right. The targets aren't meaningless, but they aren't everything. But they take because they're concrete because they're a number, you know, there's something that you either support or oppose. Mm. And I think that if the Greens are smart and the independents are smart, and, and I think they are, they're going to find a way to turn it into 43 plus. It'll be, all right, you can have your target, but you've got to increase the integrity of what the hell that means. And we're not going to we're not going to let some farmers promise to not chop down an extra tree or whatever in order to get to your target. Mm. And I think that you'll see the fight about no new coal, no new gas coming uh, over the top of 43, saying, great, you've passed that target, but the real problem we face is X and Y and Z. So I think there will be a willing debate about the target. I can understand why Labor will want to stick with what they took to the campaign, but I think the climate debate and domestically and internationally will overwhelm this. I mean, the Pacific Island states have all made it clear that they want Australia to stop building new coal mines. Uh, is, does that make building new coal mines uh, a plaything of the Greens or a centrepiece of our national security? Like, mm. you know, we need to kind of open up our field of vision and, and see that things like 43 versus 30 you know, uh, and not the be-all and end-all when it comes yeah. to climate debate. Hey, Catherine, I think you and I had kind of similar takes on this, which is part of the story of this government is going to be learning from the mistakes of the, the Rudd-Gillard era. Um, 
I've kind of chanced my arm running a tortured metaphor on second marriages in your August publication today. But I am interested in the echoes of what went wrong managing climate last time and whether that is relevant today and how you see that playing out over the next months. Yeah, well, look, it's, it'll be a really defining debate in this parliament for sure. I think Anthony Albanese has thought a lot about the Rudd-Gillard period, what went wrong and how you might try and prevent those mistakes from repeating. But he's not a magician <laughs> at the end of the day. He's just a prime minister. But I do think he has thought a lot about this. And uh, and part of his thinking about not repeating the Rudd-Gillard thing is having a concrete agenda that's able to be implemented in one term of government so you don't get into the dreadful Rudd scenario, which was that climate change is the great moral challenge of our time. But when you run aground with your agenda, then you're seen in the public space to backtrack and walk off it. I think uh, I think that's where sort of 43% in the architecture that they have put to voters at this election sort of represents this idea about what can we do, what, what is doable and doesn't sort of get us into that dreadful bind um, that we found ourselves in in the Rudd-Gillard period, which was then, you know, basically sort of accelerated the weaponisation of climate action for a decade. Um, Do you think the Libs and the Nats still see benefit in weaponising it or is that the other change? Well, well, no, this is the thing about Peter Dutton that's been interesting. I would have thought that he would sue for peace, that he would would come in on 2030 uh, with with a signal that this is doable or this is something that we can get our heads around. I think it's very obvious from Peter Dutton's opening comments in the leadership that he thinks that climate change, once the Labor Party gets into actual mechanisms and structures in order to deliver it, will sort of basically default to the turgid cost of living argument that the Liberals have used basically to sort of work against climate action for a decade. That is, that's clearly Dutton's working supposition. Energy prices are going to go up. Cost of living is going to go up. Uh, I think he is sort of limbering up basically to paint a picture to voters that if you act too preemptorily in the medium term, it's basically a world of pain for consumers. That's where mm. he's going with it. So, like, I, I totally agree with you and Richard that there is this supermajority for climate action, but it's not occurring in a vacuum. It's occurring against a major party opponent, which, you know, has been very good at weaponising this issue for, for 10 mm. years. It is the defining debate of this parliament, but it's quite complicated for Albanese to manage, and I think that's, you know, if, if we see... Potentially a bit of friction on the left won't be terrible either. Well, not necessarily, but it's sort of, it depends. Like I'm very hopeful that, uh, <laughs> that you know, I, I was disappointed with Dutton's positioning yesterday. He had a form of words on the Integrity Commission. He's going to basically push that through. He pushed Susan Lee out there to basically do the apologia to women. I know you didn't vote for us. I know you hate us, but, you know, we're listening to you. And I thought, okay, maybe he'll sue for peace on climate, but he did not. Mm. So that is that is a dynamic that, uh, you know, Al- Albanese and others is going to have to manage in this yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. So, look, at 11 minutes to the hour, I'm getting to some questions from the floor. Alastair McCulloch asks Catherine, is this the first election that Murdoch hasn't been on the winning side? If so, what implications do you draw? I don't think Murdoch was on the winning side in 2007 either, although... Yeah. Um, 
it was mixed, right? The Telegraph put down the pom bombs to quote yeah, um, yes. David Pemberthy. No, no, that is true. Uh, that is true. Um, uh, but uh, look, I think uh, every election I've covered, every single one, uh, it's very difficult uh, because you know the sort of the, the default of the Murdoch media is is uh, you know is to be hostile. To, uh, to Labor governments. It's just a question of whether the hostile is sort of muted or the hostility, I should say, is muted or whether it's on full, you know, dialed up to 11. Mm-hmm. Um, look, I, I will also wouldn't rush to judgment. There's a lot sort of being said in slightly triumphalist uh, sort of tones that are, look, um, you know, the mainstream media in general and the Murdoch press specifically, this election result shows they have no influence anymore. Um, look, maybe, maybe it does. Uh, but again, I think, uh, you know, it, it's sort of, it's, it's still a big issue. It's still a big issue. And it's not only the Murdoch presses. There are a lot of institutional interests in Australia that are hostile to progressive governments, uh, always been thus, ever will be thus. Uh, and in terms of influence, well, look, yes, the mainstream media in general, all of us, we're not as influential as we were 20 years ago pre-internet. That's absolutely right. But I wouldn't say that uh, the that the sort of hostility that, that accompanied Albanese largely from uh, the Murdoch media uh, played no role in the election. I think that would be that would be with with due respect. I think that would be quite. Yeah, a nice there is an argument with a fair run. Labor would have won a bigger majority. Well, it's the, these things are quite hard to measure. And and I wouldn't, you know, I would not reach some sort of conclusion that uh, that that you know this ipso facto Labor wins election means uh, that the you know the the concentration of centre right, highly polarising at times highly partisan media plays no role in shaping public consciousness. I think I think it I think there is still a contribution there. Um, just quickly, Pete, I mean, the Courier-Mail raged against Anastasia Palaszczuk had no effect for three elections in a row. The Herald Sun uh, thinks that, you know, Daniel Andrews should have lost the last election that he won in a landslide. I, I think the Murdoch press is much better at shifting debates than it is about shifting the votes. It, it, it draws enormous attention to what it wants to put on the front page. The ABC then follows it. So I think the Murdoch Press plays a very important role in in setting the agenda of what we're allowed to talk sensibly about in Australia, but it clearly doesn't shift votes in the way that perhaps people fear it does. Yeah, one of one of the ironies was that its all-out attack on the Teals merely raised its name recognition, yeah. which, if you talk to them, was the actually the one challenge that they needed to meet to, no, no, to no, get over the finish line. It's a mixed bag. From that perspective, it's definitely a mixed bag. Certainly, that elevation of name recognition was extremely helpful to the Teals, but it's just look, I I think it's. <laughs> you know, to say that they that they, that that uh, the Murdoch media had no impact on this campaign, I don't think that's true. Should we do a couple more questions? I'll quick quickly go. Um, Sue Masters asked, "What about the two elections coming up? Same tactics or new ones? Like, does this election tell us anything about what's going to come up over the next twelve months?" Uh, in what in state elections? Or? Yeah, yeah. Like we've got oh, Victoria yeah. and New South Wales yeah. following pretty quickly, right? Eh? Well, well. Look, I think just quickly. Um, I think 
basically the sort of that climate 200 community independence model for campaigning uh, has now been proven up, right? It seems likely that uh, that model will be taken into state contests, but also I think we need to bear in mind as, as concerned citizens in a democracy that once a model is proven up, it can be utilised in a number of different ways. So while... Uh, yeah. While um, you know, obviously this was sort of this created a bridge for yeah. Liberal Party voters to decouple from the Liberal Party and vote for candidates that Liberal voters felt they they could they could mm. vote for. There's a million ways. Could you set up a pack and run Brown Independents that yeah. take up Labor Heartland? Yeah. Like you yeah. know, it's mm. it's this is the thing about innovations in political contests. Once mm. you prove up a model, it can be utilised in a bunch of different ways. Obviously, issues have to be salient. I mean, that, that's that's the point. Like, obviously, independents could not have won the number of seats that they did on a, on a platform that was meaningless to voters because then obviously no one would vote for them. So there, there needs to be conditions conducive to sort of successful for your proven up alternative model. But I do think we need to bear that in mind, that mm. we have in this election cycle uh, demonstrated, uh, you know, there's a proven up model now that can be deployed against either of the major parties on a range of issues. Yeah, and interesting that Teals didn't go any Labor seats this time. I think the dynamic on the progressive side will change markedly if they do. Yeah, well, it's sort of, it's interesting to sort of think, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't see that, mm. that that's an immediate proposition that any of us are, are countenancing, but I'm just, I'm just stating an obvious mm. fact, right? Like we've had Clive Palmer, uh, you know, a very high wealth individual try and, you know, basically sort of spend huge amounts of money in order to get political representation over a couple of election cycles. That, that model has not been proven up as a success, but the independence model in this election campaign has been proven up as a success. It'll be interesting to see who learns from it and who who tries to sort of, you know, make reconfigure it and make it work in a different style of campaign. And also just uh, I think the Labor Party acknowledges that the Greens ground game in Brisbane, in metropolitan Brisbane, just killed them in terms of efficiency and uh, and efficacy. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see, well, both both major parties l- looking at that, learning from it, and and trying to implement it in in the contests that are coming up. Yeah, I'm, I'm Richard, more up, I'm more upbeat than that. I mean, a couple of things. One, Labor, you know, they're, they're never going to thank the Greens for this, but Labor kind of match fit in having to cover their left flank while appealing to the middle because they've actually had that fight with the Greens for 20 years and, you know, losing Melbourne, Lindsay Tanner's old seat, you know, hurt. And and Labor have been alive to that threat for a long time. The Libs haven't been. So yeah. for, so, so I think the, the Teals will continue to go after, I'm, I'm not saying they won't go after a Labor, an independent won't go after a Labor seat, but they've got to kind of, you have a three-way race with the Greens there. It's open terrain in the Liberal seats. 
And also, let's not forget, remember when Corey Bernardi was going to set up the conservative version of Get Up and about 14 people joined? Like, after <laughs> every election, the conservatives pretend that the silent majority they speak for is silent and majority, when actually it's clearly a vocal minority. <laughs> no, no, and that's, yeah, that's, as, that's terrific, yeah. No, but as, as Catherine said, you actually need the salience of the issues that motivate people. And and these people are just angry and bitter, you know, and whenever they say, and we're going to rise up and we're going to bring everyone with us, no one comes. So, yeah, they could use the model, but history says that, I mean, there's a 1,000 people watching our webinar tonight. You know, the IPA's got a lot more money. I guarantee there's not a 1,000 people uh, watching a webinar of theirs tonight. So, you know, Catherine's right. The model can be deployed by anyone, but the model only works when there's a lot of people who genuinely care and believe. And I, I don't think that's there. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening and for turning up, as people do in vast numbers, to a poll position which is hosted by the Australia Institute. If you didn't watch the video version of this and you've only heard the audio version of it, please uh, have a look at the slides on the Essential Media website. That sort of takes you through the various poll metrics that Peter flags during the conversation. This episode was produced by Miles Martignoni. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.